Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. Unidentified mutants. Ignore. Yes, Rogue has a way with men. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama, episode 180, X-Men, the animated series, Night of the Sentinels, parts 1 and 2. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't, or TV you know and TV you don't. This week, TV you know, hopefully. Uh, welcome to Verbal Diorama, whether you are a brand new listener to this podcast, welcome back Regular returning listeners, thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing this podcast. I'm so happy to have you here for the history and legacy of how Night of the Sentinels came to be. And most importantly, how the X-Men animated series came to be. And even more important than that, the legacy of the X-Men animated series. And so a couple of notices for you all. This podcast has been AWOL for a couple of weeks. The first week was due to a self-imposed break week because I was so behind on everything. I thought to myself, look, I'll just take a break and I'll catch up next week. And then the next week came along and I was sick. And I mean, proper off work for a couple of days, sick. I very rarely get that sick. So that's how you know I was really sick. And at that point, I had most of an episode on Let the Right One In, ready to go. But I never got round to finishing that episode. I never got round to releasing it. So the verbal diorama schedule has been bereft of an episode for two whole weeks. 
And I even missed Halloween, which is one of my favourite nights of the year. It's one of my favourite times to release a spooky episode. I'd planned to do Let the Right One In on Halloween. And so I felt bad, but I also felt quite sick. So my plan this week was to get something out ASAP. But then I thought, well, I want to try and get back to the schedule that I normally do. I want to try and release to the patrons first because the patrons get episodes the week before. And I can't do that if I do let the right one in this week on a general release. So my idea then became, let's do something else this week. And then I remembered that it was X-Men the Animated Series 30th anniversary on Halloween. And so then I was like, well, very special anniversary. The 30th anniversary, the first airing of the premiere of X-Men the Animated Series. And I wanted to honour that with a slightly smaller episode, which is what you're listening to right now, on how the series came to be, how Night of the Sentinels specifically came to be, and really, just to reiterate how important this series is, not just to myself, but to so many people across the world. This series was and continues to be a huge success. And there's so many fascinating and wonderful reasons why this series is such a success. Because this series was a huge risk. And I think we forget how risky X-Men the Animated Series actually was. So I wanted to tell the story of how X-Men the Animated Series came to be. I'm going to forewarn you, there's a lot less Stan Lee in this story than you might think. Here's the unofficial official trailer from Disney Plus for X-Men the Animated Series. The world tonight is in the grip of a terrible crisis. Those unfortunate mistakes of nature are running wild. How could you register her with that mutant control agency as if she were some sort of criminal? This is Professor Xavier's School for the Gifted. All of us here are mutants. Like yourself. We X-Men learned something very special here, Jubilee. How to control our mutant powers for the benefit of mankind. But then why do people hate us? Your violence will solve nothing. We must use our special gifts to bring peace to mankind. If we fail, there will be a civil war. Better that we die on our feet than live on our knees. synopsis on the whole of the series because I mean there's a lot to cover five series of a tv show there's a lot there so I'm just going to give you a brief synopsis on Night of the Sentinels part one and two and that is a young teenager has been rejecting her mutant powers ever since she discovered them when giant robots track her down it's up to the x-men to save her after breaking into the headquarters of the newly discovered government branch called the mutant control agency 
the X-Men lose two of their own members in a battle with the Sentinels. Let's run through the iconic cast of X-Men the Animated Series. We have Norm Spencer as Cyclops, Cal Dodd as Wolverine, Lenore Zan as Rogue, Iona Morris as Storm, George Boozer as Beast, Chris Potter as Gambit, Alison Court as Jubilee, Catherine Disher as Jean Grey, Cedric Smith as Professor Xavier, and Rob Rubin as Morph. X-Men Night of the Sentinels Parts 1 and 2 were written by Mark Edward Edens, story editor was Eric Leewald, and Bob Harris was also a story consultant. It was based, of course, on X-Men by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, and created by Margaret Loesch. And that's a name that I'm going to be coming back to. You don't know who the X-Men are, and I presume that you do, but if you don't, I'm just going to quickly run through it. September 1963, the X-Men debuted in comic books in the X-Men number one. The main characters and ideologies based on real-life civil rights activists Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, both men attempting to achieve the same goal of civil rights but with opposing philosophies and ideologies, Martin Luther King believing in peaceful, non-violent coexistence, and Malcolm X in separatism and black nationalism. Despite having different points of view to their method, their goal was the same and they had the best interests of their community at heart. Their polarised opinions and approaches were evident, but towards the end of their respective lives, each grew closer to the other's view. Now, of course, Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X tend to be the main focal points of the Charles Xavier and Eric Lenscher characters, both which, I mean, Magneto doesn't feature in Night of the Sentinels at all. Professor X features very briefly in the show. There's a reason for that as well I'm going to come to. But as far as verbal diorama goes, and as far as I go as a person and as a human being, I've done many, many episodes on the X-Men on this podcast. I've done an episode on the movie from 2000, which is episode 56. I've done X-Men 2, which is episode 111. I've done X-Men First Class, which is 156. I've done Deadpool, technically an X-Men story, in episode 102. I've even done X-Men Dark Phoenix. And that was episode 11 of this podcast. That was a long, long time ago. But really, my love for the X-Men didn't start with the movies. It started with the animated series. And the animated series conception wasn't really guaranteed or expected. Because unlike Fantastic Four and Spider-Man, the X-Men weren't really as widespread and well-known. There had been comic books and they'd been successful. But it's easy to see why there was some scepticism of the marketability of essentially a story about prejudice, division and bigotry based on the civil rights movement. The person we have to thank for X-Men the Animated Series, as well as the rise of the X-Men in pop culture just generally, is Margaret Loesch. Loesch started her career in ABC in 1971 before moving to Hanna-Barbera in 1979 and in 1984 became Marvel Productions President and Chief Executive Officer until 1990 and an x-men animated series became her passion project but despite her status it didn't mean that that was an easy journey her first attempt pride of the x-men was a partially self-financed animated television pilot broadcast in 1989 based on issues 129 to 139 of uncanny x-men marvel productions and toby animation were working on the robocop animated series at the same time but Marvel chose to make this pilot instead of a 13th episode of Robocop. And in fact, Robocop even has an animated series 
still kind of knows my mind a little bit. The X-Men themselves had previously guest starred in several episodes of Spider-Man and his amazing friends, although that particular series isn't necessarily in the same continuity. Pride of the X-Men, spelled like pride, as in Kitty Pride, was narrated by Stan Lee and infamously introduced an Australian Wolverine, somewhat foreshadowing Hugh Jackman's casting for the 2000 movie. Pride of the X-Men was intended to launch an X-Men animated franchise. The story that they'd originally wanted to do for Pride of the X-Men was a story about the Sentinels. But, this being the late 80s, toys were important. And the idea instead became to create a roster of the X-Men versus the Brotherhood of Mutants, basically to sell a toy line. The plot of Pride of the X-Men included the characters of Kitty Pride, Professor X, Cyclops, Colossus, Dazzler, Nightcrawler, Storm and Wolverine versus Magneto, Juggernaut, Pyro, Toad, the White Queen and Blob. With Kitty Pride arriving at Xavier School gifted and Magneto's plans to redirect a passing comet to hit Earth, plunging the planet into another ice age and have stronger mutants to take over humanity and rule once and for all. Ultimately though, Pride of the X-Men failed and it didn't help that Marvel started to have financial difficulties and work was halted on its roster of animated shows, which weren't just Marvel properties, because Marvel famously worked on Transformers the Movie, see episode 133, especially if we're talking about toy lines, because Transformers the Movie, very famous for trying to influence a toy line, as well as the Transformers TV series and G.I. Joe, the only series continuing production was Muppet Babies. Pride of the X-Men was praised for its high-quality animation, but... Most felt the plot was too simplistic. It was a standard good versus evil, rather than focusing on the bigotry and intolerance the comics were so noted for. It was basically X-Men, but in name only. So Marvel Comics Group was owned by Cadence Industries Corporation since 1968, and it had been sold to New World Pictures in 1986, along with Marvel Productions and incorporated as Marvel Entertainment Group. New World Pictures, who purchased the Marvel Entertainment Group from Cadence Industries in 1986, sold the group in January 1989 to the Andrews Group. The failed Pride of the X-Men pilot effectively marked the end of the Marvel Animated Universe, created by Patty Frenning Enterprises and Marvel Productions, which began with Fantastic Four in 1978 and continued with Spider-Woman in 1979, Spider-Man in 1981, Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends in 1981, and The Incredible Hulk in 1980. Margaret Loesch, though, wasn't put off. After leaving Marvel in 1991, she became the CEO of Fox Kids and decided to revisit an animated X-Men series. She was actually a childhood DC Comics fan, and she met Stan Lee in the 1970s, and through their conversations, she became aware of the X-Men, how passionate Stan Lee was of his famous characters, and she fully bought into the premise of the X-Men. The fact it was about powers and superhuman abilities, but also just about a group of people who were different and were treated as different and were prejudiced against. She immediately identified with the characters and set about making an animated show her priority after her first year of working with Fox Kids. It would take Margaret Loesch working with several of her previous contacts at Marvel Productions, including Larry Houston, who became the producer-director of X-Men The Animated Series, to set up a 13-episode first series, starting with Night of the Sentinels, based on the Mutant Registration Act, which was first used in Days of Future Past from Uncanny X-Men 141 by writer Chris Claremont and writer-artist John Byrne, 
And most importantly, to everyone involved, this was going to be an animated series that would be unlike anything that came before it, because it would contain intolerance, prejudice, metaphors for minority groups, and even, as I'm going to come to, character death. Fox actually only budgeted for one story editor, so Eric Leewald became the story editor, despite him having no knowledge of the characters, and novelist Mark Edward Edens became the head writer. They were given just three weeks to write the first draft, with help from the 1988 Marvel Universe coffee table book. 400 pages of all the characters and their powers and their history. The first big meeting to discuss X-Men the Animated Series took place on the 17th of February 1992, at the Saban Building in Toluca Lake. Fox TV Network executives, people from Marvel Comics, artists, producers, animators, marketers and financiers attended, as well as Stan Lee. Leewald and Edens had been writing together for 10 years and needed to come up with a big two-parter and be able to capture an audience of all ages. The first thing to agree was the X-Men lineup, which had changed many times over the years in the comics. Everyone agreed they needed Wolverine, he was a fan favourite character. The rest of the team was a collaborative discussion between the team at Fox and the team at Marvel. Marvel wanted Gambit included, Fox wanted Cyclops, and everyone wanted as diverse a team as possible. Storm and Rogue were chosen due to their flying abilities, which were easier to animate, and additionally Storm as a woman of colour, with another woman of colour, Jubilee, chosen as the audience surrogate character, as opposed to Kitty Pride in The Pride of the X-Men. Jubilee is, of course, canonically Chinese-American. Originally, Beast and Jean didn't feature prominently and were more background characters, but as the show progressed, so did their arcs, including Beast's season-long incarceration and the infamous love triangle between Jean, Cyclops and Wolverine. And then there was Morph. Originally intended to be the character Thunderbird, However, it was pointed out that Thunderbird was Native American, and did they really want to kill a Native American character in the first episode? The Death Throne character then became the character Changeling, but Changeling became Morph after DC also had a character with the same name, and the legal team advised, maybe you shouldn't use Changeling, maybe just change the name to Morph. The intention always was for a character to die, which, and I'm going to keep coming back to this, was so revolutionary for an animated show. Other shows like He-Man and Transformers never showed character death. And when the Transformers the movie so famously did in 1986, it caused trauma to a generation of children who didn't understand where their favourite character, spoiler alert, Optimus Prime, had died. To kill Morph, regardless of whether he was a throwaway character or not, was a huge risk and gave X-Men something that other animated shows simply didn't have. Stakes. Working with the writing team in an unorthodox way was censor Avery Coburn. She would advise the team what they could and couldn't get away with. And this was a Saturday morning animated show, all at a time when children would be watching. Not only was a character going to die, albeit not on screen, but it was also going to show scenes of a young girl being chased by huge robots. Basically, genuine peril. The president of Fox Broadcasting Company, Jamie Kellner, wasn't happy with Margaret Loesch's X-Men, even going so far as to denounce it as too dark and violent. The whole creative team was so passionate about the story and keeping it faithful to the source material that when the executives rebuked the Night of the Sentinel story, the whole creative team threatened to quit. But their collective strength made the executives back down and allowed them to focus on the sort of story they wanted to tell, not a standard mutants versus mutants story 
but a story of vulnerable people who happen to have superhuman abilities, fitting in with humanity and fighting for humanity, and the factions of fear and hatred that threaten that balance. With the Sentinels as the ideal embodiment of fear and hatred, and the perfect depiction of a clear visceral threat, everyone understands the idea of a 30-foot robot stalking someone until they're captured. It's scary. It shows, again, the stakes. But X-Men the Animated Series didn't just push boundaries on its content. It also did something that no other animated show at the time did. It was serialised. Along with X-Men the Animated Series, the only other show that pushed similar boundaries was Batman the Animated Series. And that was famous for its dark, broody content. But even Batman the Animated Series was episodic, not serialised. You didn't need to watch Batman from start to finish. There was no season-long story, no character arcs. Like every other animated show, Batman was episode-by-episode stories, all neatly concluded by the end of the red time. X-Men was different. X-Men changed the game. X-Men was narrating its stories exactly like a comic book would, by having a story that hooked you in at the start and kept you coming back, episode-by-episode, or issue-by-issue, for more. This is something that X-Men did first, and paved the way for Buffy the Vampire Slayer to make it the norm. To have, that, to have a series big bad, as well as episodic story in between the serialised story arcs. Night of the Sentinels sets up in just two episodes, a whole season's worth of story, from Beast languishing in prison, to Sabretooth's showdown with Wolverine, and the Sentinels, each episode ending on a cliffhanger to, again, bring you back for more with the next episode, starting with the famous, previously on X-Men. <laughs> That's not a clip, that was me. But anyway... And these cliffhangers was an idea championed by Fox Network exec Sidney Iwanta, who championed the ambitious project wholeheartedly from the start. For the pilot alone, there were 600 storyboards, and the storyboard phase was when the issues with Stan Lee came to a head. Stan Lee is obviously a much-missed individual. He's been so pivotal to superhero stories, superhero cinema, to his famous cameos in movies. Stan Lee is a legend, and there's no denying that. But he wanted to be heavily involved in the series. And so he started to give notes on the storyboards. But by that point, it was too late to actually change anything. He hadn't been a creative voice at Marvel for 20 or so years at that point. And he was thinking in terms of a kid's show. Whereas the team wanted to focus on the core structure and story of the comics. Stan Lee also fought to narrate the show like he did on Pride of the X-Men. And even Margaret Loesch wanted Stan Lee involved, but she was talked out of him narrating, which turned out to be the best decision for the show, despite all of Stan's work with characters and his future movie cameos. The entirety of season one was tidily plotted out by Mark Edward Edens and Eric Leewald, and because at the time they were only assured of one season, they set out to fit as much story in that season as they could, which was also against the status quo. And this was risky because even a small delay in the animation process would generate a domino effect that would postpone the airing of completed episodes if they weren't connected to a larger story. There was a delay with episode 3, so until January 1993, X-Men wouldn't get into a weekly routine of airing new episodes. They would have to wait months to see if what they wrote, drew and recorded worked together. The entire first season of scripts was finished before a cell of animation was drawn. There was no way to plan episode by episode. Since it lacked the staff at the time to manage production internally, Saban Entertainment, the company that was contracted to produce the show, engaged a small studio called Gratz Entertainment to produce the episode. 
The episode's animation was done by the South Korean studio ACOM, and the voice acting was done by Canadian studios. Due to production bottlenecks, the release date of X-Men was moved from the Labor Day weekend in September 1992 to the end of October 1992. The first episode was delivered with hundreds of animation faults by the animation team at ACOM, who refused to rectify them. Due to time constraints, the episode was aired unfinished, with 50 scenes missing and only one day set aside for editing. The second episode was submitted just before the deadline, and the two-part Night of the Sentinels episode debuted on October the 31st as a sneak preview. Fox then threatened to terminate ACOM's contract as a result of the two episodes' production holdups and the animation mistakes. The issues were fixed before Fox rerun the pilot in early 1993, ready for the series to run in its entirety from January 1993. And X-Men the Animated Series received high ratings throughout its first season and was quickly picked up for a second 13-episode season. Attempts to save expenses, requests to change the tone of the series to something more kid-friendly, and requests to incorporate toys being sold into the show were just a few of the quality control concerns that producers had to deal with over the lengths of the entire series. Unfortunately, Fox decided to stop doing the very thing that gave season one its energetic quality for later seasons. Future seasons of X-Men switched to a more episodic storyline format to minimise production issues. However, the authors didn't entirely give up on their goal. Season 2 included a season-long subplot involving Professor X and Magneto in The Savage Land, typically as a two-minute action segment at the beginning or end of an episode. This prevented the narratives from colliding, like dominoes. The five-part Phoenix Saga and four-part Dark Phoenix Saga were included in Season 3 as serials, albeit episodes running at this time were radically out of order, so Jean Grey's death and reappearance had little of an impact. While Margaret Loesch would admit the show's production value wasn't great due to time and financial pressures, the writing and performances were strong, and she did everything she could to make X-Men a success. X-Men the Animated Series formally debuted in January 1993, and by the end of the month, it was defying all ratings expectations. By March, it was getting half of all Saturday morning audiences, as much as all three other networks combined. The original goal was for the series to have 65 episodes, Due to its popularity and Marvel's bankruptcy, Saban funded the final episodes at a far lower cost, which led to a different animation style and Saban producing in-house. It was the success of X-Men the Animated Series and Margaret Loesch's persistence that led to Fox considering a live-action feature film. That movie, 2000's X-Men, wasn't the first comic book movie, but it arguably started a chain reaction which has led to comic book movies of today. Production issues aside, season one of X-Men the Animated Series hooked audiences in on the concept of animated serialization, whilst also raising the bar for storytelling and animation. Subsequent seasons often aired out of order or not at all, but fans were still enamoured with the series, and it continued until September 1997, with crossover episodes on Spider-Man's 1995 episode The Mutant Agenda and Mutant's Revenge. And 25 years later, the animated series is returning for new episodes on Disney+. Plus. First announced in autumn 2021, Marvel is working on what they're dubbing X-Men 97, a continuation of the old show with many of the same actors and even a few of the original creative team, such as series writers Eric and Julia Leewald and director Larry Houston. They're all consulting on the show. Returning voice actors Cal Dodd as Wolverine, Lenore Zan as Rogue, George Boozer as Beast, Chris Potter as Gambit, Alison Seeley-Smith 
as Storm and Alison Cord as Jubilee. And Alison Seeley Smith, she wasn't Storm in season one. That was Iona Morris, but Alison Seeley Smith did take up the mantle of Storm for later seasons of the show. And I know you're wondering, what is the obligatory Keanu reference going to be for this episode? Well, the obligatory Keanu reference is a part of this podcast where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring to Keanu Reeves. Now, this is not a movie. There's a lot of movies based on this material. This is not a movie. But it's actually really easy to link Keanu to X-Men the Animated Series because like Keanu, the entire voice cast of X-Men the Animated Series is Canadian. This episode is always planned to be a bit of a shorter episode, so I'm not going to do the same kind of format that I normally do. But I do want to quickly talk about the music for X-Men, the animated series, because this is one of those famous theme songs for any animated series ever. It's so ubiquitous with the X-Men. And when he was approached to write the theme music for X-Men, the animated series, Rob Wasserman had no prior knowledge of the X-Men. The concept of the music originated with Ron Keenan of Saban, I was inspired by a song he had written called Piranha Canoe. Beginning with something resembling that, Wasserman added a number of strings and fake guitar. And it was actually the same fake guitar he'd previously used for the Power Rangers theme. The theme song was created over the course of two weeks with Sydney Iwanta leaving remarks along the way, requesting more bass line and subsequently more hi-hats. It was, and I quote, a real pain in the ass to do, according to Wasserman, but it paid off by not only becoming one of the most iconic theme tunes of all time, but also becoming synonymous with the X-Men as a group of characters. In 2019, Zoltan Crisco, who acquired the rights in 2013 to Linda, filed a lawsuit against Marvel Entertainment Group, Haim Saban, Shiki Levy, UMG Recordings, the current distributor of Disney Music Group and Fox Corporation. He claims that the song was plagiarised from the theme song to the 1984-1991 Hungarian action-adventure television series Linda, which was composed by Georgi Bukan. Crisco demanded a jury trial and sought unspecified damages and no further reproducing or distributing of the infringing work. In July 2020, New York District Judge Gregory H. Woods ruled the defendant's motions to dismiss the case were granted in part and denied in part. In a ruling joyously riddled with X-Men references such as a complaint need not be as solid as adamantium to survive a motion to dismiss, Judge Woods asserted that Ron Wasserman could be removed from the list of defendants, but also that the case could move forward. In January 2021, the lawsuit was officially settled, with sparse details of the settlement included in the court order. Presumably this action satisfied Marvel and the company's legal teams enough to encourage this year's resurgence of the X-Men animated theme song, without fear of legal retribution. And this theme song has obviously been used in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness and most recently in the TV show Ms. Marvel. X-Men the Animated Series is responsible for so much of what came after. But for me personally, it gave a little bit of hope to a weird girl who always felt different. That there could be other people who were similarly as weird as her. And as that girl grew up, she found those people. She related to those people. And... Is now the Kick-Ass Podcast host that you're listening to. Now, I'm not from a marginalised group. I'm a cishet white woman with all the privilege that gives me, but I can still relate to being a little bit different. I can only imagine how welcoming and open the idea of the X-Men were to members of the LGBTQ community or people of colour or any group treated differently or prejudiced against. I actually talked about my feelings on X-Men, the series and the movies as a whole, in a recent episode of the Fundamentals podcast with Harley, 
which was a lot of fun. And I would highly recommend you listening to that because we go into quite a lot of detail about the movies specifically, but we also do touch on the series and how important the series is to both of us. It wasn't until I started looking into X-Men the Animated Series that I realised just how special and important this show really is. Not just to me personally, but to the X-Men and to superhero cinema as a whole. Not only was it a show that didn't pander to the whims of children, it also stayed faithful to its roots by telling a story suitable for children, but it was also cross-generational. By making a serialised show with story arcs over a season, it gave us a binge-worthy show before the era of streaming services, a show ending on a cliffhanger and giving us a previously on, focused on one core team of X-Men while giving comic book fans the cameos they wanted to see, but it never confused its viewers by adding new team members. Unlike the 2000s movie, X-Men the Animated Series is fiercely proud of its comic book roots, of its brightly coloured costumes, and real care was given to things like animation shading despite the low budget. It still talked about political divides, hate groups and prejudice in a palatable way. And while it's not as emotionally complex as the movies can be, X-Men First Class being a prime example of the division and similarities between Charles and Eric that the animated series never quite goes into in any detail, it helps to explain to children that you shouldn't see a difference, you should embrace The name Margaret Loesch might not be as memorable or important to you as Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, but remember her name, because without Margaret Loesch, I'd wager cinema would be very different today. X-Men the Animated Series was groundbreaking. It defied all of the rules. It took risks and it became the de facto source for a generation of X-Men fans. It's still finding fans today due to its inclusion on Disney+. And with Batman the Animated Series, it paved the way for other animated comic book shows into the 1990s and beyond. It took a comic book, gave its characters voices and personalities that have become ubiquitous and also is so far the only place outside of the comics where you can find a genuinely great and compelling Dark Phoenix saga story. And if that's not enough to recommend X-Men the Animated Series to any of you listening, then I don't know what is. My work here is done. (laughs) Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on X-Men the Animated Series. Thank you for bearing with me while I've been sick. And to the people who've been showing their support on social media, asking how I am. It's been really kind of you. Thank you so much. Normal programming will resume next week when Let the Right One In is going to come out on general release. Obviously, if you have enjoyed this episode, I don't normally do episodes on TV, but this was a special circumstance. And I'm so delighted to have done a little bit on the history and legacy of X-Men, the animated series. If you do want to help this podcast to grow, to find new people, please consider leaving a rating or review or getting in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Letterboxd at Verbal Diorama or simply telling your friends and family about this podcast, especially if they're a fan of X-Men, the animated series. As I said, I've done loads of episodes about the X-Men, so have a look in your podcast app find one of my many episodes on anything to do with X-Men. More X-Men is coming to this podcast at some point in the near future, I can guarantee, because I haven't done Days of Future Past yet, and I am a huge fan of that particular movie. I want to take a moment to give thanks to the amazing patrons of this podcast. I do normally list them, but this is a slightly smaller episode, so I'm going to keep it brief just to say 
Thank you for being a patron. Thank you for your continued support. It's so, so appreciated. But the only way I can possibly end this episode is by the way that X-Men the Animated Series starts its episodes. By the banging theme tune. Previously on X-Men. Bye. Movie should know.